The KM Community Podcast, bringing you stories from Kent's communities every week. Hello and welcome to the KM Community Podcast. I'm your host Oliver Kemp and over the coming months I'll be bringing you the stories and important issues from communities all over the county. If you have a story you think needs to be told, just use the hashtag KM Community on Facebook or Twitter or you can email me at okemp at thekmgroup.co.uk. This week... Climate change has become a serious topic of conversation across the county. Recently, many local councils across Kent declared a state of climate emergency, with some pledging to be carbon neutral in just over a decade. Last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that one of the best ways to combat the damage climate change has done is to reduce factory farming and meat consumption. How did we get here and what can we do about it? To discuss this, I'm joined by Dr. Charlie Gardner, a lecturer in conservation biology at the University of Kent. The KM Community Podcast. Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Um, Climate change, I think it's fair to say, is one of the biggest discussions of our time. It's regularly in mainstream media outlets now, but perhaps we don't uh, talk about how we've got here as much as how we're we're talking about where we are now. So maybe you could just briefly explain how we've got to this point with climate change. Sure. Well, the reason we're, that our climate is changing is because of something called the greenhouse effect. And this is something I'm sure everyone is familiar with. If you get into a car on a sunny day, it is um, unbearably hot. And that's because the sun's rays are pen, are entering through the windshield um, and then they reflect off the interior of the car. and But that reflection changes the, the type of radiation. So w- when it's reflected back, it can't penetrate out through the glass again. So the glass acts as this barrier and traps all the heat inside. Well, our atmosphere does the same thing. Um, and we have um, what we call greenhouse gases, things like methane and carbon dioxide, which create this greenhouse effect in our atmosphere. And this greenhouse effect is its a natural phenomenon and it's really important. If we didn't have it, our planet would be too cold for life. What's happening, um, what has been happening since the Industrial Revolution is that we've been hugely increasing the strength of the greenhouse effect by releasing all these greenhouse gases. So since the start of the Industrial Revolution, we've been burning all this coal and then oil. And that's what's that what that's done is taken all this carbon that was in fossil form, buried under the ground, and added it to the atmosphere. And the, the greenhouse effect of our atmosphere is really, really sensitive, so it only takes tiny increases in the amount of these greenhouse gases to have this effect. So, um, for example, at the start of the um, Industrial Revolution, in the middle of the 19th century, the, the concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere were 280 parts per million. Um, and since then, through all our burning of fossil fuels and also you know, deforestation, plowing of soils and things, that's increased the rate, the concentrations to 415 parts per million. Wow, um, that's a big increase. Then. It, it's a big increase, but in terms of, of you know, the actual number of molecules out there, it, it's, it's not huge, you know, 400 per, per, per million. But it has this extraordinary effect. So um, on average, the global temperature on the surface of our planet has increased by 1.1 degrees since um, since since the Industrial Revolution. The 1.1 degrees and, th- and that doesn't when people think about that and we talk about the uh, we had a, one of the hottest days on record in July uh, with temperatures of 37 degrees in Kent 
Um, a degree doesn't seem like much, but what does that one degree have? What, what effect does that one degree potentially have on our, on our world? So, um, well, it's important to remember one degree is an average and it varies hugely from place to place. So one, a one degree um, increase um, on average equates to about a five degree impact on, on uh, sorry, a five degree increase in the Arctic. In terms of the impact that has, it, um, you know, so warmer air holds a lot more moisture. So that means there's a lot more, uh, yeah, there's a lot more moisture in the atmosphere. That means we have a lot more um, severe storms. The, the severity and the frequency of, of storms has increased hugely globally. Um, and then we, the other big impact is, is changes in the predictability of the weather. And you know, we'll have, we've seen that over recent years and this year in particular. We had, you know, we, you, you mentioned the, the hottest day ever in July. Well, we, in February, we had 20 degrees. Um, and people were walking around Canterbury in you know, shorts and flip-flops in February. It was extraordinary. Um, in May and July, we had massive hailstorms. So at the same time as, as we were having these record-breaking temperatures across July, across Europe in July, we also had huge hailstorms in, in Spain and, and in France, hail, hail um, stones the size of golf balls which is it's just extraordinary to have these record um, temperatures and huge hailstorms within weeks of each other. So the predictability of our weather systems around the world um, ha has um, yeah, been, been massively changed. And that's a problem because we rely on being able to predict our, our weather. Farmers need to know when it's going to rain. They need to know when to, to plant their crops. Last year, we had um, you know, the record-breaking temperatures over the summer. We had a, a hot and dry summer. In some parts of England, agricultural production was down by 50%. Um, so you know, it, it, it impacts our, our agricultural things. It's also impacting the natural world in a huge way. One of the things we, we commonly talk about is uh, the melting of the polar ice caps. The, um, in the, the Arctic Ocean, for example, um, is, is frozen. Um, unlike Antarctica, which is a continent, um, the Arctic is, is not, it's, it's just open sea, but there is sea ice on it. And that sea ice is, is melting rapidly. And that's a real problem, not just for, for the polar bears and the seals um, that, are, that live on it and are you know, held up as, as, as the poster boys of, of climate change, but it's a, it's a real problem for the entire um, marine ecosystem and all the fish we depend on um, from that ecosystem because sea ice um, forms the basis of the food chain. So there are algae which grow on the bottom of the sea ice and they are grazed by these tiny crustaceans called krill, like tiny, tiny shrimps. And those krill form the bottom of the food chain. They are eaten by all the, the commercially important fish. Um, so as we lose um, um, sea ice, we will find dramatic decreases in, in global fish production. The, the, the warming, the, un, the yeah, unusual warming in, in the Arctic and um, temperate regions is causing a lot of forest fires. So um, you may be aware in recent weeks that much of Siberia has been on fire, and which is just absolutely unprecedented. In recent years, we've had huge destruction from forest fires in California, in, in Australia, and elsewhere. Um, 
the, it, the heating impacts forests in a lot of ways. Um, it impacts coral reefs. So you know, coral reefs are often talked of as the rainforests of, of the sea. They're a highly diverse and rich ecosystem that you know, over a billion people depend on. Well, corals are highly sensitive animals that can only exist in a very narrow temperature range. And what we're finding now is with warm, warming waters, corals, uh, coral reefs are dying. It's a phenomenon called coral bleaching. So there are, um, you know, there are all sorts of impacts on the natural world. Perhaps another one that people might have noticed is spring arriving earlier. Um, flowers are coming out to bloom earlier. The migratory birds are returning back from, from Africa earlier. And this is causing a lot of problems for, for a lot of species. So for example, um, some migratory birds um, come back and nest in this country and they, um, you know, they, they feed on caterpillars to, to feed their, their chicks. But by the time they arrive back, the caterpillars have already completed their, their life cycle and metamorphosed into butterflies. So there's no food for them when they arrive back. So, um, so their populations are declining drastically. Yeah. So across the natural world, we're seeing these huge ranges of impacts, which are having you know, big impacts on, on, on species and ecosystems, but also fundamentally um, on us because we rely on these ecosystems to, you know, for our survival. Yeah, I want to go back briefly to um, you talking about the, the ice caps melting. And it was only last week that there was that incredible video of the 12.5 billion tonnes of Greenland ice melting in just 24 hours. So in the videos of quite shocking, people's reactions are, are quite shocked by it. Is there anything we can do about it? Because people see these um, and they're shocked by them, but is that going to instigate any change? And if it does instigate any change, do we have the power to change that now at this point? Absolutely. It's, so um, it's very important that we are now seeing these images and we're starting to talk about the, um, you know, the severity of the problems we, we face. I still think that we're not speaking about it truthfully enough. So you, know, you, you spoke about these images of, of, of melting ice caps in Greenland. Um, they are shocking, but they're still presented to us as an environmental problem not as um, a threat to our very survival, which they, you know, it, genuinely, it genuinely is. In terms of, of what we can do, we need to um, fundamentally transform our society. We need, to, essentially, we need to change our energy economy. We are um, hugely reliant on, on fossil fuels, the burning of, of um, hydrocarbons, coal, and oil and, and natural gas. And we need to, to stop doing that um, absolutely as quickly as possible. So there is um, a, a body of the United Nations called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And the IPCC gathers together some of the world's top climate scientists. And they don't produce their own research, but they synthesize existing research and try to um, you know, synthesize that into, into a digestible form for, for, for policymakers. So, I, so, and periodically they produce these reports, which are really the cutting edge of, of the state of the art of climate science. And traditionally, um, so the, the reports of the IPCC have tended to be um, mocked by, by climate scientists that know, because the IPCC is a political process. And of course, they put together the science, but then 
the reports that they produce have to be agreed by all the member governments of of the United Nations. So they can only say things that absolutely everyone agrees on. And so they tend to be slightly ridiculed for being far, far too conservative. Well, last, uh, towards the end of 2018, the IPCC put out a report um, which was about um, what the world has to do if we're going to limit the increase in temperature rise to just 1.5 degrees. And the report basically said, it's time to panic now. It's time to radically change the way we organize our societies. And it's only recently that the IPCC um, mentioned the fact that, I mean, they didn't, they didn't say, you know, we have to move towards vegan and vegetarian diets, but it was suggested that this is one of the big ways that we can, we can limit this. Do you agree with that? I do. So um, meat production, animal agriculture, and particularly um, industrial meat production is a big contributor to climate change um, for a couple of reasons. One is that the ruminants um, like cattle produce methane. And methane is a much, much more powerful um, greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. But the main reason is that eating meat is a vastly inefficient um, way of, of producing food. So because of, of the inefficiencies of an animal converting the food it eats into flesh. So um, the, generally, uh, you know, the, the figure given is, is of an order of magnitude. So a ten, there's a 10 times reduction in, in energy um, between the food that, a, that a, a cow eats and the, the energy it will, it will generate when it's eaten. So you know, what that means is lands that would be, um, the land required to produce enough meat for one person would have been able to produce enough plant food for 10 people. So it's hugely inefficient. Um, having said that, I'm, I'm slightly concerned with the way that this information is, is, present, is used and presented. Because when we hear that we as a society need to eat less meat. What we're, what we're told and what we hear is that we as individuals need to decide to eat less meat. And I think that's highly unfair on us as individuals. We, need, we don't need individual change, we need system change. And you know, it's really unfair on us to, to be told on the one hand you need to eat less meat, but on the other hand to go shopping and be presented with huge amounts of, of, of cheap meat and to walk the streets and be bombarded with advertisements for, for um, you know, burgers. Yeah, but is, is the alternative feasible? Because in my mind, the alternative, if you're not going to suggest that people need to make their own decisions on whether they do or, do or don't eat meat, you are going to be either restricting meat purchasing in supermarkets or restricting the advertising of meat. And then you've got that some people might say then that you've got a big brother mentality happening where you're stopping people from eating the things that they want to eat. Well, it's a question of human survival. Local councils and, and governments around the country have declared a state of climate emergency. And we need to think about that word emergency. It is an emergency. And in an emergency, you change your normal behavior. And of course, it's not going to be um, you know, all, all pleasant, um, but it, it needn't be um, you know, horrific either if we start making changes now. But I think you know, we need to acknowledge that we cannot carry on as normal.
with with regards to meat, I think you know the most important thing is to um, to look at the economics of it and change the economics so that the huge costs of producing meat are factored into the price. You know, we eat a lot of meat now because it is artificially cheap. It's hugely subsidized and there are what economists call externalities. So the costs of meat production are not factored into it. Um, you know, producing meat emits a hell of a lot of carbon and that carbon, it's, you know, it's taking away the futures of our children and, and grandchildren. So that's a huge social cost that everyone is paying for meat production. If there were um, taxes on um, emitting car carbon or a, a, a proper price on, on carbon that reflects the damage it causes to society, then that would be reflected in the price of meat and it would become... Um, more expensive, we would treat it as a special thing as, as we always have done. And don't forget our, you know, our habit of, of eating meat every day and, and, and sometimes multiple times a day is a very new thing. You know, my parents grew up having meat as a special treat perhaps once a week and that's how um, most of the world in, in non-industrialized countries um, st still, still lives. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm not saying we need to you know, cease eating all, all meat immediately, but we need to think about how we produce it, and we need to go back to having it as as a special thing rather than something we take for granted eating every meal. Mm. You talk about, um, just a little minute ago, you talked about the idea uh, of taxing meat. That's obviously going to be in the powers of central government. Now, a lot of local governments have been declaring climate emergencies. We've had councils like Maidstone and Tunbridge Wells in Kent who have done that. Um, why is having that carbon neutrality target so important? And is it feasible for councils to actually hit this? Because they're all trying to do it. Maidstone recently pushed theirs back from 2030 to 2050 because they're obviously not feeling that it's feasible. Uh, but why is it important? And, and at this stage, is, 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 do local councils have enough power to instigate change? I was actually at that council meeting in Tunbridge Wells a few years ago. I, I spoke as a member of the public to, you know, to encourage councillors to, to um, vote in favour of, of the climate emergency motion. And it was, it was a wonderful thing. You know, the, 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 vote, the motion was passed 43 to 0 with just a single abstention. So people were really going for it. And you're right, this is um, something that's sweeping the country. Over half of our councils have now declared a climate emergency and so, so has Parliament. And there are, there are different ways of, of, of viewing this. Some people are a bit cynical seeing it as, as merely um, a symbolic um, gesture. It's, it's all talk. And of course, at this stage, it is all talk. It depends. It, it has to translate into policy change. It has to translate into action. Otherwise, it means nothing. But it is, I think it is important because it shows leadership. It shows a, a commitment and um, once you've made that commitment, other things follow. So, for example, um, a few weeks ago, there was a planning decision on um, an extension to the M4 motorway in Wales. And the planning um, was refused. And it happened because a climate emergency had been declared. Um, so yeah, this decision to go on building road infrastructure, which is well known to increase rather than decrease the use of cars. The planning decisions reflect the fact that it is an emergency. So that's really important. In terms of what local councils can do, 
Um, I'm afraid I'm not a an expert on 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 local governance, and of course, um, their their powers are somewhat limited because many things are determined by um, national government or national agencies. Like you know, there's a national highways agency, for example. So so local councils don't have 100% power over the roads in in their local authority. But there there are lots of things they could do. So. Um, in terms of transport, there are all sorts of measures to um, to reduce car use and try and encourage people to use uh, active transport, walking, cycling, and and public transport. Or um, the councils can provide. Uh, you know, improving public transport is hugely important, and of course, our, our public transport infrastructure has been decaying for for decades. It's hugely underfunded and impacted by austerity. Um, in terms of buildings, councils can um, put forward policies to ensure that all new construction is uh, is hopefully carbon neutral, um, zero carbon. If if not, um, then then you're at least as efficient as possible. In terms of energy generation, councils can promote the um, production of renewable energy on on council property. They can also require the use of, of renewable energies in and and in um, new developments, and require new developments to install things like ground hot source heat pumps or, or, or solar pho uh, photovoltaics. Waste is important because landfill generates a huge amount of methane. So, and there's lots of councils can do at a local level to ensure that nothing goes to, to landfill. Beyond that. Um, they also need to divest from fossil fuel industries. You know, the fossil fuel industries are only able to, to persist because people continue to invest in them and, and councils have huge investments, their, their pension funds and all the rest of it. So they need to divest um, from fossil fuels as, as soon as possible. Are we talking wind power? Are we talking nuclear? What, what's the... What's the kind of... This, what's the solution? Because obviously, as you say, our infrastructure is still so buried in fossil fuels presumably it's going to, there's going to be some kind of crossover because you couldn't move straight to wind power i mean wind turbines take years and years to be made the, the planning permission alone to build offshore takes a number of years the, the structure the infrastructure of building them and then operating them so what what would be the the answer there so you're you're right we are talking about a transition but this is a transition that we have to um, start with now. So that means we need to make these decisions now to stimulate these transitions. There is no one answer in terms of our, uh, our energy economy. We need a highly diversified energy economy. There are all sorts of different ways of producing renewable energy. You talked about wind, we've mentioned solar, there, there is um, tidal power, there's hydroelectric power, there's a ground source and air source heat pumps. Different places will need to um, make best use of, of the, you know, the, the environments and the natural resources available to them. But one of the, it's increasingly recognized that we will um, depend more and more on micro power generation. So power that is generated on site rather than um, dispersed through a grid. If you don't mind, I'd just like to go back to, uh, to one thing, because there was one more thing I, I, I wanted to say about what councils can do. Because all those um, solutions I suggested are about minimizing um, how much carbon we continue to release in the atmosphere. But 
even if we reduce that to zero very, very quickly, that still won't be enough because there's already too much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we need to remove that. We need to draw that out of the atmosphere. Luckily, we have this amazing technology to do that at zero cost. It's called a tree. Plants take carbon out the atmosphere and convert it into their tissues. They convert it into wood where it's stored. Um, and it's widely recognized we need tree planting and, and, and sort of ecosystem restoration on a massive scale globally to draw down the existing carbon out of the atmosphere. Trees are the only technology we have to do this. And of course, councils are in charge of a lot of physical space. So tree planting on council land is hugely important. And of course, that brings all sorts of other benefits to it. Trees make towns better. People prefer to have trees than to not have trees. They cool it down. They support birds and, and, and insects. You know, everyone recognizes these are a very good thing. And it's something that we can do cheaply. So that's interesting. So that's one, one, of the, one of the things that councils should start doing if they really want to reach this carbon neutrality target and start drawing, drawing out the, the bad things in the air is to start building trees, uh, start building trees, start <laughs> planting trees. I've started um, talking about them in, in technological terms. Yeah, so that's yeah, my fault. That's why I said building, yeah. <laughs> um, start planting trees around our counties and our, and our borough councils Absolutely. so we can start, start improving. I just want to finish on, on one, more, one more thing, Charlie. So... Um, Extinction Rebellion has probably been one of the most successful groups in recent years of mobilising to talk about climate change and the effects that it has. Um, we've seen demonstrations in around Kent. We've seen we've seen children leaving school on a Friday to to walk around Canterbury. My own students. Oh, there you go. Okay. Um, is this the generation that that has to has to make it count? It has to be. Um, you know, the IPCC say we have until 2030 to radically alter the way our societies are run. Otherwise, um, you know, we are at risk of, of leading to a world which cannot support civilization. So this is, climate change is, um, you know, it's a threat to our existence and we don't have a lot of time, which is why we use this language called emergency. Um, I think, you know, Ex Extinction Rebellion is just the most wonderful thing. It's, you know, the reason you are here talking to me today is because Extinction Rebellion has put the climate crisis into the limelight. You know, everybody knew about climate change before, but nobody was doing anything about it. And it wasn't a real concern for people. It was just oh, some, some environmental issue that's going on in the background. Today, thanks to um, Extinction Rebellion, the environment is the third biggest concern for uh, UK voters. It's a bigger concern than health, crime and immigration. 71% of voters in this country think oh, that climate change is a bigger issue than Brexit. So this has happened because Extinction Rebellion and um, the youth strikes inspired by, by Greta Thunberg have made the media, made the government realise that this is... Um, an emergency situation. With the, um, the uh, international rebellion that took place in London in April, over 1,100 people volunteered to be arrested, were willingly arrested because they realized that this thing is so important that they were willing to risk their liberty um, to try and make change happen. I was at those um, at that rebellion in, in April, um, not, I wasn't there for the full 10 days, I was there for three or four days, but I was so inspired by it. Um, it felt like it was just such a hopeful moment. It finally, you know, 
Environmentalists who know about the state of our planet and the way we're going tends to be really despondent because they felt that there was no turning back. We are going to utterly destroy our planet. Extinction Rebellion has changed that. It has given us hope and it really feels like this there might be a possibility for change. I was so inspired by it that I went back home and started an Extinction Rebellion group in my hometown, which I now run, um, and we're doing great things there. But really, it's, you know, this is the moment. We have very, very little time left to save ourselves, and we absolutely have to seize this opportunity now. Charlie, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. The KM Community Podcast, bringing you stories from Kent's communities every week.